Gary Parish. It's Tuesday, October 30th, 2018. Welcome back to the Island College Basketball Podcast. Matt Norlander is here with me, and I'm going to talk to him in just a second. But before we do that, let me tell you about SeatGeek. Buying tickets online, it can be a complicated process, but it doesn't have to be. Not when you use SeatGeek, and that's because SeatGeek searches multiple ticket sites for you. That way you know you're getting the best prices, best seats, best value. Type in what you're looking for in the search bar. Two clicks later, you're buying tickets. It could not be easier. For instance, uh, I saw Kerry Washington on Colbert last night, right? She's promoting this new Broadway show called American Son. So let's say you decide you want to go see uh, Olivia Pope on Broadway. Uh, you just open that SeatGeek app, type in American Son. Your options are going to pop up. Pick your seats, and you'll buy them suckers in a matter of seconds. It's simple stuff. Personally, like next week, Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, the Sixers are coming to Memphis to play the Grizzlies. I'm probably taking my boys via SeatGeek right now. I can get in the lower level for like 50 bucks a ticket. So next time you need tickets to anything, open that SeatGeek app on your phone and get after it. And don't forget, use the promo code COLLEGEBB. That's promo code COLLEGEBB to get 20 bucks off your first SeatGeek purchase. That's SeatGeek, millions of tickets in one place. Norlander, what's up with it? Happy Halloween Eve, GP. Great to be back oh, with you. God. You got an issue with this? Yes. All right. Floor's I- yours. We have not brought this up, so this wasn't planned. No. But you say Halloween Eve. For me, it's actually Halloween. You got some rain going on down there in Memphis right now? They're expecting rain tomorrow. And my neighborhood, just all willy-nilly last night, decides, um, hey, we're going to do Halloween trick-or-treating on Tuesday night. Let me, pause there- Let me pause you real quick. Here's my question for you. How does that... Is that a text message between the moms and dads, like 20 of them? Do you got a Facebook group? How do you come to establish this to be the case? I still don't even really know. Okay. My wife just came upstairs and she said, hey, you know, we're doing trick-or-treating tomorrow now. And I'm like, why? She said, because they've moved trick-or-treating to, to tomorrow. And I'm like, well, who has the power to do that? Like, how do you, how do you get that job? <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't even know how she found out. And then, and then I, but then I, one of my neighbors was on Facebook and he was like, uh, just make sure everybody knows uh, trick-or-treating's tomorrow night. I'm like, who de- who decides this? It seems like something we should talk about. I like, think they did talk about it. You just weren't privy to that conversation. Like, why would they include me in the conversation? I, uh, I'm i a prominent homeowner on our street. I feel like I should be at least involved in the in the conversation a little bit because in, in reality, like, it, it, can, it can mess things up. I, I was probably going to take my boys to see John Wall tonight. Well, now I can't go see John Wall tonight. I got to go trick-or-treating. And my neighbor, as I was leaving the house today, I was talking to him. He said that he was supposed to leave on a business trip tonight. And now he's not going because he doesn't want to miss trick-or-treating with his daughter. Like, well, who could, how do you just move Halloween? First of all, no one calls it Halloween. It's Halloween. And it's no one, Halloween. No one calls it trick-or-treating. It's trick-or-treating. But I hear I hear your laments. It's really not the end of the world, Parish. Yes, it is. It is the end of the world, though. You you get candy one day sooner, unless you're not unless you're not a candy guy, which is of course ridiculous. But anything's possible with you. Who would not be a candy guy? Oh, there are people. There they are don't people. Even, yeah. yeah, cats. Yeah, Kit Kats, Reese's, any kind of the fruit candies, which I'm not really big on. They they are out there. The anti sweet tooths. They're they're definitely out there. So what we've yeah. done here is. First of all, I vow to the listeners we're not going to have you go off on Thanksgiving again when it gets time because you've done that like five years in a row in the podcast. But you're now bumping up your grievances with the holidays to Halloween. Now, I, this could be a one-year thing. I understand that. And I get where you're coming from. 
if I may, on a on a quick side personal here, I live uh, I live not on like a um not on a busy road, but it's a main road if that makes sense. Like there's cars going by, but it's not like so bad that I wouldn't let my toddler and I let my dog out on the leash in the front yard. But what I'm getting at here is the one thing that we lucked out on when we got this house is about a half mile away is where the intricate neighborhoods on neighborhoods begins. We get zero trick-or-treaters, which as a homeowner is a damn blessing. Have our kids go out into the wild. They can go to all these other houses. So I'm never on the hook for Halloween candy. It's the greatest thing ever. I love it. I, I loved Halloween. I love it more now than I ever did when I was 10. I uh, We have a pretty elaborate Halloween setup. One of our neighbors does like a huge deal. Uh, like it's a big barbecue and then, you know, like all the candy you could imagine. And um, they hook a big trailer up to a vehicle and they have a hayride and they pull kids around from, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll drive kids down the street and then park it. And then everybody jumps off and goes house to house to house to house to house. So it's a pretty big deal. But I just don't think like, I just don't think you could just move it. Like, how can you just move it? What if my neighbor wasn't prepared for tonight? I mean, we just found this out at 9 o'clock last night. That's what, what, what if my neighbor was counting on, okay, I've got till Wednesday to get this done. And then, like, somebody just says, no, you got till tomorrow to get this done. Can't just move holidays. It, Have we all done this? Like, be honest. Is this something that's always been a thing? I don't remember Halloween ever getting moved when oh, I was Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, I remember growing up, Halloween, the trick-or-treating night. Now, this was, again, I have no idea how this was established, but there would a if, like, I want to say if Halloween felt like on a Sunday, you'd trick-or-treat potentially on that Friday or Saturday because that was, frankly, just the better night to go out and do it. But I feel like there were a couple of instances where that indeed did happen. Um, so I don't, th- I don't think your neighbors are completely uh, off base here. But, uh, but yeah, man, you just got to adjust to it. Steal all your kids' Reese cups. That's the, that's the duty f- for you as a father. And, t- and like your old- First of all, your oldest probably isn't even going, right? He shouldn't. Once you hit the teen years... It's basically yeah, I done. I don't think my oldest enjoys it at this at this age, but it, we we force him to be a part of it. Okay, <laughs> but I, I'm not sure he enjoys it. But he's he's going to be a part of it. And the little ones, you know, they just think it's the best thing ever, right? Um, of course. You know, I, my little boys are four and two, and they just they have an absolute blast with it. So it is it's a fun night because you get to see your children have a blast. But like, just don't be changing my skin. I shouldn't have to rearrange my week because you decided to move Halloween. And I still got to figure out like who actually gets to pull the trigger on that. That's a pretty big responsibility to be the person in charge of Halloween. (laughs) Like imagine, like imagine having that power that you could move Halloween if you want to. I feel like you should move it back a day instead of up a day though. I'm going to think about how you say Halloween the rest of the day now. Um, (laughs) We got some treats for some listeners. All America teams are out. What do you want to get into here? Okay, yeah, we did publish our All-American teams, uh, first, second, and third, over at CBS Sports. That happened earlier today. And honestly, they don't look much different than any other All-American team you've probably seen. First team, Carson Edwards, R.J. Barrett, Caleb Martin, Luke May, Diedrich Lawson. You okay with that? Yeah, I'm good with those votes. I'm good with that first team overall. I will say this, Parrish, before we get into some of the guys we have on, on our first, second, or third team, we are repeating what we saw last season, and by that I mean I remember talking on this podcast about how groupthink had taken hold in regard to 
Michigan State's Miles Bridges being the preseason player of the year. Uh, he was the best player on our top 101 list, and he was really, really good. But I remember thinking th that it was so widespread that groupthink had taken hold, and it was really more likely than not that that wouldn't wind up being the case. And in fact, that's what happened. Miles Bridges was not the player of the year. He wasn't the best player in college basketball last season. So I just wonder if the R.J. Barrett train has gotten a little too far out ahead of itself. I still think he's going to be awesome, um, but everyone is basically slotting him, almost everyone, as the player of the year, and if not that, then the top three player in college basketball. So let's just keep an eye on that as we get ready for the season. It's it's not a guarantee, first and foremost, because even though he's fantastic, let's remember that he is a freshman and there is a certain element of the unknown with him that we didn't even have with Bridges going into a sophomore season last year. I still think Bridges was the right pick for preseason player of the year based on all of the information that was available at that time. I mean, he, he checked every box. Incredibly productive college player uh, who – was a lottery talent, but decided to come back to school and was on a preseason top 10 team, preseason top five team. Like that, that is the stuff of, of national players of the year. It just, you know, it just didn't work out, but he was still, wasn't he still big 10 player of the year or no? Uh, no, that, that was, was Carson, I believe. Yeah. I don't think no. Bridges won it. Oh, I, I think it was uh, at Ohio state. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There we go. So I, um, so, but like, I, I still think Miles Bridges was a reasonable pick for preseason player of the year based on everything we know. Um, but I hear you on R.J. Barrett, and if you're trying to argue against him, um, the way you would argue against him is freshmen don't win that award. Not often. Only two of the past 12 Naismith Award winners have been freshmen. You can surely guess them, right? Uh, they, of the past 12, so you had... Uh, Back to 2007. It's the one-and-done era. Yep, yep. Um... Uh, let me guess these. Okay. It's got to be Anthony Davis. Fun. And uh, did Durant win it, Parrish? Kevin Durant swept, uh, I think, swept everything. Okay. Um, uh, so the past 12 Naismith Award winners, which means in the one-and-done era when the most talented high school players are basically being funneled to college, uh, only two of the past 12 have been – uh, have been freshmen. It's uh, Kevin Durant in 2007, Anthony Davis in 2012. Meantime, and this surprised me a little bit, four of the past five have been seniors. Mm -hmm. So if you're arguing against R.J. Barrett, um, the argument is freshmen, as great as they might be and as talented as they might be, um, they don't usually win this award. If you're arguing for R.J. Barrett, the way you would make the argument is um, he's ex despite his age or class he's the type of guy that that does win this award because and i explained this uh, while writing about it a little bit although i don't i don't know how illuminating it actually is it's just a, a, a pretty obvious thing uh, the national player of the year award in college basketball does not always go to the quote-unquote best player in college basketball it it goes to the best player on a really good team um on that note understand that each of the past 11 naismith award winners um, has been a t uh, from a team that finished the season ranked in the top 20 at Ken Palm. So any conversation about player of the year has to basically start there. Like, uh, not only is this player going to be good enough, but is he going to be on a team that's good enough to put him in a position to collect trophies? And that, that might be the argument against Carson Edwards. 
um, is his team going to be good enough? I think they could be, but they did lose four starters, and that's not an easy thing to to overcome for anybody, uh, especially when you're not enrolling five stars uh, prospect after five star prospect like your Duke or, or Kentucky. So if you're arguing against, so really my point is, you got to look for somebody who's going to be great on a on a on a really good team. And R.J. Barrett, I think, is going to be great on a really good team. But Caleb Martin, I think, is going to be great on a really good team. Diedrich Lawson, I think, is going to be great on a really good team. And that's why these things are always hard to pick. You know, only one guy gets the trophy. But R.J. Barrett, that's who I voted for. He makes sense to me. Uh, yeah, me too. And that was my pick. I'm just I'm curious to see how this thing kind of goes uh, with him. Um, what, two points here, Jer- Parrish. Uh, one you said 0607 was 0506 technically the first year. I feel like uh, it might have been, but you might be right. I thought 0506 was the first year. I only bring that up because I was going to read off the guys who have won. Um, but do you remember if it was at 0506 or 0607 that was the first class? Was Durant in the first class that couldn't go straight to the pros? My recollection is Greg Oden and Kevin Durant were the stars of the first class that was not allowed to enter the NBA draft out of high school. Okay. I feel like it might be the year before, but I might be wrong. The listeners will surely let us know. Here's who's won it, and they're one of the biggest things with college basketball and Player of the Year awards and why we don't necessarily remember them as fluidly as the Heisman is there are five or six major awards, uh, traditional ones. That doesn't even include ours, the best one, CBS Sports. And so sometimes you have awards that get swept, sometimes they get split. But if we're looking at what Paris was setting up there, here's who's won it over the past 12, 13 seasons. You had Reddick in 0506, and you had Durant. You had Tyler Hansbrough, 0708, Blake Griffin, 0809. Then it was Evan Turner at Ohio State, Jimber Fredette at BYU, Anthony Davis, Trey Burke with Michigan, Doug McDermott at Creighton, Kaminsky at Wisconsin, Buddy Heald and Denzel was really the the biggest split we've seen in a long, long time. They each took it home there. Frank Mason with Kansas, and then Jalen Brunson with Villanova last season. Of all of those teams, the worst team of the group, if you're wondering, like, how is Carson Edwards going to maybe pull this off? I'm, you can't even say it was BYU. The year that Jimmer won it, they were 32-5. and five. They were a top 15 team. They were really, really good. Um, the Durant-Texas team was solid. I know they let down in the tournament. So did actually McDermott's Creighton team. They were really – I think they had a three seed. They didn't get out of the first weekend. But all of those teams were fantastic. So if you – it's 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 just a fact of life. You're, you're not going to see anyone in the modern college basketball era, even if you go back further than that with almost all the players that would, would come up. You're on a team that's competing for a one, two, or three seed almost exclusively. Occasionally you'll get in maybe a four or five. But uh, if you're not – pushing into the upper portion of the seed lines, your chances of winning player of the year, just you'd have to have just something insane from a statistical standpoint. Because even Trey Young, who did regress, even Trey Young, who was on a bad Oklahoma team, couldn't overcome that despite the fact that he became the first player and did it as a freshman to average the most points and assists in one season uh, in college basketball. That That's exactly the point, is that Trey Young was – I mean, anointed the National Player of the Year like in first week of January. And then, even though he fell off and, and ultimately wasn't going to be a serious contender for that award, even if he wouldn't have, I don't think he would have gotten the award because Oklahoma simply was not good enough um, to, 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 to produce a National Player uh, uh, of the Year. And so, uh, again, when you are trying to identify who that guy might be, um, really start looking at the AP poll or the coaches poll or the top 25 and one or the Ken Palm range. Uh, you're going to be picking somebody more, way more often than not 
that's from one of the top 20 uh, top 20 teams in the in the country. So R.J. Barrett is our national player of the year preseason. That, by extension, has to make him the freshman of the year preseason. You can't have, although I've seen people do it, you can't have, some, it, it's nonsensical to have uh, your national player of the year be a freshman and then not also have him be the freshman of the year. The coach of the year was a little more interesting because and what you're trying to do, at least I think, is predict like who is going to, you know, on preseason awards, like who's going to be deserving of these things in March, April. That That's what they are for me. Preseason awards have nothing to do with what happened last year. It's you're trying to predict based on sometimes what happened last year, but you're trying to predict, you know, who's going to be in contention for these things, um, you know, in, in March and April. And when it comes to players, you can sort of you, you choose from wherever you want to choose. Although, like I said, you're, you're wise to start um, with players from, from top 20 teams. But Coach of the Year awards don't always just go to coaches who have great seasons, um, you know, or, or who run one of the best programs in America. Sometimes they go to guys who overachieve relative to the preseason expectations. That's how Chris Holtman ends up as the Big Ten Coach of the Year last year. It's how Rick Barnes ends up as the SEC Coach of the Year uh, last season. Uh, neither of those guys coached a top 10 team, and neither coached in the Sweet 16. But relative to preseason expectations they were both fabulous and so they got those awards well my point is this in the preseason you can't really um take you can't really consider somebody who's picked 11th in the big 10 or 14th in the sec because there's no reason at this moment to think that they're going to overachieve to 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 uh, to some amazing level in other words chris holtman couldn't have possibly been on anybody's preseason coach of the year list uh, no different than uh, Rick Barnes could have possibly been on somebody's preseason coach of the year list. When you do this, you're sort of reduced to just trying to, uh, you know, look at coaches who are expected to have good teams who you think are going to have a great season. And our voting settled on Eric Musselman. And I think that makes sense on a couple of different levels. A, um, just having Nevada as a preseason top 10 team, like you are, you're, you're, you are coach of the year stuff just doing that in and of itself. But they're also right there with Gonzaga at the least amount of risk of flopping. Because it's possible Tennessee might just be as good as everybody thinks. Or like might get you know, the separation between the best team in the SEC, whether it's Kentucky, Tennessee, Auburn, whomever, and everybody else isn't that wide. The separation between the best team in the Big Ten and the next four isn't that wide. The best team in the Pac-12 in the next three isn't that wide. But the separation between Nevada and everybody else in the Mountain West, pretty big. Separation between Gonzaga and everybody else in the West Coast Conference, pretty big. And so, like, I, if you look at Ken Palm right now, Nevada's got going to have at least a 72% chance to win every game on their schedule. They are significant favorites in every game on their schedule right now. And Ken Palm projects no team in the country to enter its conference tournament with more wins than Nevada. It has Nevada entering the Mountain West Conference Tournament with a 27-3 and record. So if you were supposed to be good, and you are going to be good because you're at very little risk once your league schedule starts of losing games, uh, you know, barring injuries, of course, but even then, um, that's the type of that's the type of guy who wins Coach of the Year. I, I, will, I feel way better about Eric Musselman being the National Coach of the Year than I do any player being Player of the Year. 
I do too, and I'll keep this short. Uh, I voted for Musselman in our in our voting. Um, so uh, surprised and happy to see that he won out, just because I think he is the most logical pick of any. Now, and I was also trying to forecast how this will actually play out at the end of the season with voters. And if you have the teams that are slotted in the preseason top ten play to form for the most part. Uh, what you're going to have there is a lot of repeat performances from last season uh, or close to it with a lot of those teams landing on those seed lines parish. And even though Nevada made the tournament, made the Sweet 16, it, was, it wasn't in what I think it will be in, and that's the discussion for a two or a three seed. I have hesitation, even though I think Nevada will have the ability of a one seed. Their non-conference schedule, let's just see how all those teams wind up. I mean, there's just... There's not a, a reason to believe that right now Nevada is going to have a non-conference schedule that is going to stack up with a lot of the other teams that are going for the one line. So I think if it plays really, really well and does much of what you laid out in terms of expecting to win so many of those games, and it's it has I think it's lost only three home games since Musselman got to Nevada, um, then, yeah, it'll have a gaudy enough record that I think it'll be in, in the convo for a two and absolutely a three if it lives up to expectations, like unquestionably. So when you look at all of that and you have the voting come in, you're going to have a lot of the big-name coaches who have won this award before and who have been in there in recent seasons. And right or wrong, fair or not, uh, that will be held against those coaches, whereas Musselman, at a non-traditional power, pushing into that conversation, it's why I think he's got the best chance at doing it. And, uh, yeah, rightfully so, preseason coach of the year for CBS Sports. By the way, um, I went – if I sounded distracted recently, it's because I was. I was trying to figure out that one-and-done thing. Mm -hmm. um, the class of 2006 – that's Greg Oden, Kevin Durant. They were in the 2000. Um, they they had to go to school, right? I mean, they had. Yeah, I mean, they didn't have to, obviously, but the 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 NBA draft was no longer an option for them. Um, straight out of high school, uh, the class before them was 2005, and that's the class of Gerald Green, Dwight Howard, Monta Martel Webster, Andre Blatch, Lou Williams, Andrew Bynum. In other words, a whole bunch of guys who okay. went straight into the NBA draft. So it was Odin and Durant's class that was the first to to not be allowed to go straight to the NBA draft at a high school. Gotcha. So what? Yeah. So it was the '05 class of high school was the last one, but since it was '06-'07, that '07, that two years removed is what threw me. But you were uh, you were on the money there from the start. Um, you know, back to Nevada just a, a bit because I do think it. It, it sets up to be a remarkable season for them. You know, I, I don't know, and I, I think you've made the point, and it's a perfectly fair point, that if Nevada was called something else, correct me if you haven't made this point, but if Nevada was called Kentucky, like they might be preseason number one. Um, I, no, it I might be about it, Parrish. They would be. If Nevada was called Kentucky and you had the exact same roster situation happening there, Kentucky would be the runaway, overwhelming number one preseason team. Yeah, I, 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 think, that's, I think that's a fair thing to say. Um, some would disagree, perhaps, but it's a it's a reasonable point of view. Um, I personally think Kansas is is on paper better. I personally think Kentucky is on paper better. But here's what I'm telling you: I'm more confident that Nevada enters Selection Sunday with a top two seed, maybe even a number one seed, than I am either Kentucky or Kansas. And the reason is because you know the SEC is going to be tough this season, and the Big Twelve tough. Every season, whereas Nevada is going to be a little bit like the the last John Calipari teams at Memphis when they were still in Conference USA. Like it, some of his teams were great, others were not as great, but they all ended up with thirty wins. 
you know, just because they were so much better um, than than the teams that they played in January, February, and early March. For instance, um, everybody remembers the 2008 team that went uh, that went 30. Uh, what did it finish? 38 and two had the whole, lost to Tennessee and then lost to Kansas in the national title game. They lose off of that team, Chris Douglas Roberts. They lose um, uh, Derek Rose. I believe they lose Joey Dorsey. So they lost three starters. I don't think they were as good the next season. But the next season they went 33-4 and four and got, I believe, a two-seed in the NCAA tournament. My, my point being, when you are so much better than everybody in your league, like Nevada is going to be this year, like Gonzaga is going to be this year, you're, you're going to end up with an incredible record. And if you start the season in the top ten, you know, I won't be surprised if we look up at some point and Nevada's ranked number one in the country or Gonzaga's ranked number one in the country just because the other schools in the power leagues are beating up on each other. And you know, starting in January, those two schools ought to be able to cruise, cruise, cruise. Yeah, and we've got, obviously, Caleb Martin uh, represented on our first team and then Gonzaga, which has a lot of really good play, like an overload of really good players. This team has a chance. It does. There's been some awesome Gonzaga teams in the past five, six seasons this team has a shot to be the best Gonzaga team ever. It's To me, it's that loaded. When you add in the critical transfers of Geno Crandall, who was one of the best players in his league, uh, Brandon Clark, who played an absolute no-man's land in Nevada's league at San Jose, San Jose State, but is expected to be just a straight-up dude. Mark, Mark Few was telling me, you know, the one thing about this team is we don't have as much, like, real just – Oaf type size with this group, and it's been a while since that's been the case. We've got some bigs, but they're not, you know, we just don't have any hosses, so to speak. Uh, but what Brandon Clark might be able to step in and do, see how much weight Killian Tilly's put on. Um, there's just so much depth overall. Gonzaga's gonna be really, really good again. We put Rui on our first, uh, on our, our first, on our, uh, on our All America team. Didn't make the first team. He's probably got the best shot defensively. He's supposed to be a lot, a lot better. If it's not Rui, I think Josh Perkins is a sleeper pick because I just he's gonna have the ball in his hands more than anyone. He's gonna come close to setting some Gonzaga uh, statistical records because he's just been there and been a, an impact player for four seasons. So he's absolutely uh, he's he's in the mix, but he's not who. I would say is like the most likely player to to pop and be a first team All America uh, among the guys perish that we don't have on our first, second, or third team. If you look to me, the player who it is is that's not on any of the teams. We don't have Eric Pascal at Villanova. I think Pascal is going to have such a prominent, efficient year. Because he was awesome at Fordham before he transferred to Villanova, and he's been good, but he hasn't been a feature player. Um, speaking to Jay Wright, they expect him to be very much uh, a focal point of that offense. He would be my number one pick just past, and this might be your pick, but I would pick him just past Marcus Howard because I think Villanova will finish ahead of Marquette in the Big East and in the polls, and because of that, I think it'll give just a slight edge to Pascal over Howard. If I were trying to identify somebody who didn't make our first team, second team, or third team, who could end up being an actual first team All American, I'd probably start with Reed Travis, right? Mm. Or or whoever Kentucky's best player is going to be, because if Kentucky is going to be as good as most people think, they're going to have a representative on that on that team. You, they, they, you, you know, if you're going to be one of the top two teams in America, then you and I know you don't think they are, but I I I think they they could be. I think they yeah. can be. I just don't have them that right now. But yes, um, you're going to have a representative. Somebody from Kentucky is going to be an All American, even if nobody on Kentucky 
uh, from Kentucky is on our first team, second team, or third team. Like, Kentucky's going to be good, and it's going to have a best player, and that best player is going to be, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, collecting awards at the end of the season. So maybe Reed Travis is, is a good candidate. Uh, Nasir Little, uh, I, I know that they bring back Luke May, who had really great numbers last season, um, and he deserves to be a, a, a preseason All-American. We have him on our first team. But I could see – I mean, Nasir Little clearly the most talented player, and I could see him being a star in, in what is presumably one year of college. Other possibilities, uh, Cassius Winston at Michigan State, I think he can break through. And I think we've talked about this before. He shot 50% from the field, 50% from three-point range, 90% from the free throw line last season. He's a very good college basketball player. He's just overshadowed last season by the presence of two lottery picks, Jaron Jackson Jr. and Miles Bridges. They're both gone now. Um, I think Cassius Winston can take a, a step forward. And then uh, maybe a guy off of the national radar who doesn't play in a top-seven league but who is a legitimate NBA prospect and a terrific college player. Uh, Kellen Grady at Davidson. I could see him ending up on one of these All-American teams because I think he's going to be great. He's got a good shot. Um, and if you want one more super sleeper, maybe not for first team, but for second or third, uh, I was looking at Jonathan Gavoni's rankings earlier today of just of, of by class and by position. Uh, I knew this player was, was good and an NBA prospect. I didn't realize that his stock at this point is this high, and that's Ja Morant at Murray State, who is a stud and who is very much on the path to be a, a two-and-through guy. No doubt about it. Uh, he's fantastic. He is the one in a mid-major league that I think, outside of Mike Dom or anyone else, has a great, great shot at getting to that uh, second or third-team All-America status. Before we get out of here, you had a piece up recently, CBSSports.com, about teams that made the NCAA tournament last season that you do not expect to make it uh, this season. Who is the one that you got the most pushback from? Uh, from fans, on from fans, I should say. Um, Arizona, but that's because they're just hot-blooded about a lot of stuff in general <laughs> right now. So Arizona fans are champing at the bit. Um, and then I was not surprised. Par- so Arizona's the team that was seeded best last season that I have not making it back. They were a four last season. They lose a lot. We talked about it on the previous podcast. I have them 42nd overall in my 1-353. to I don't think they're going to make the tournament this year. The other team whose fan base came at me it was the, it was right with Arizona in terms of being highest seed and not making back. I don't have Wichita State going back to the tournament, which you know what maybe Greg Marshall makes me look uh, quite dumb. He has obviously done so well, and it's his going on nearly a decade with Wichita State getting into the tournament. It has become basically an annual thing with him. But they bring back Marcus McDuffie, who's good, but they lose a lot. They they were not picked to do well in the American, um, so. Perhaps this speaks more to to fan bases uh, expecting less than drastic drop-offs from one year to the next, but um, the two programs who I heard the most about happened to be the ones that had the best seeding last year, but I don't have the Shockers or the Wildcats getting back. I wouldn't either. Um, I, Arizona, I think, has got a better chance. Like, Wichita State just lost too much. I mean, nobody has a higher opinion of Greg Marshall than I do. Like, I think he is tremendous, a Hall of Fame coach. I think he should be in the Hall of Fame someday. Um, I just don't know that he's got a roster that can, you know, get him. You basically got to be top three, four. I know that doesn't. I, I know that the committee doesn't do it this way, but if you're not in the top three, maybe four of, of the American Athletic Conference, you're probably not getting into the NCAA tournament. And I don't think anybody's projecting Wichita, Wichita State as a 
top four team in, in that league. Remember, not only did they lose all of these pieces, but their most heralded recruit was Alex Lomax, who, after Penny Hardaway got the Memphis job, you know, Alex Lomax has been Penny Hardaway's point guard at East High School and for Team Penny um, for years. Penny started coaching him when he was in middle school. Um, you know, Alex asked for a release, and to Wichita State's immense credit, they didn't even fight it. They just said it's the right – I talked to Greg about it. He just said it's the right thing to do. Um, you know, the young man wants to play for his mentor, and he should be allowed to do that. Uh, things have changed at Memphis since Alex committed to us, and, and we were never going to stand in his way. Um, so that's an a, immensely impressive thing to do because, like I, I told Greg at the time, I don't think every coach would have handled it uh, quite as cleanly as he did. Um, but the, you know, it's a bad thing for Wichita State. It was the right thing to do, but a bad thing for Wichita State because they needed to replace a lot. He was one of the players they were expecting to, to help, and then you don't get him. So uh, Greg Marshall's go to the Wikipedia page. His list of quote-unquote bad seasons is not long at all, but I don't, I, I don't, I don't know how, avo- how unavoidable it is this season. Like it's, Wichita State just doesn't have the personnel right now to be – um, to, to operate at an NCAA tournament level, I don't think. And I, I do I, – the other thing, they lost so many players over the years, um, you know, early to the NBA draft, whenever. But they've – the staff turnover there has been incredible too. And, and I, you know, you go back and look at um, what that Wichita State staff was just a few years ago. You know, uh, Greg Hare's not there anymore. Um, Steve Forbes isn't there anymore. Uh, you know, they, he's had incredible staff turnover, and and that takes a toll on a program as well. It, it gets it doesn't get reported um, as a big deal, but after a while, that can that can really you know take a take a toll on your program. Chris Jan's no longer there, um, and I, I think that has maybe uh, I don't want to say killed the Wichita State program. That's crazy. Wichita State's still Wichita State, but it, it's certainly not a positive. I'll put it that way. Okay, uh, I agree with you, by the way, and Marshall's uh, undergone a lot of staff changes, guys getting head jobs, getting higher positions elsewhere. Um, the fact that Wichita State's actually continued its general ascension has been uh, pretty remarkable. So aside from those two, who would be your most likely candidate from, I guess, a team from a multi-bid league, obviously not, not the auto bids, not the small guys, that you don't think is going to get back, or, or a few, if, if, if a couple pop to mind, uh, you know, we hate to be pessimistic, but this is the reality of, of every season. There's a lot of optimism, and then um, the tournament's never the same twice. There's there's always significant change among the at-large bids from one season to the next. Droughts end, droughts, you know, begin for some schools that would rather not. But uh, who do you think is most likely, aside from the two we talked about? Well, from a power conference, schools that made the NCAA tournament last season that I don't think are going to make it this season. I'm Texas A&M's obvious, right? Seems it. I, I, listen, I, you never rule out anything on October 30th, um, or as they call it in my neighborhood, Halloween. <laughs> but but it, it doesn't appear that A&M's got what, it, what they need to go back to the NCAA tournament, particularly with the rest of the SEC being so much better than it's been in a long, long time. And I, I, I think th- th- then you probably apply the same logic to Arkansas, right? I mean, I think Arkansas's got a chance, but if I were betting, I would bet Arkansas doesn't get back. I would bet A&M doesn't get back. And then for the Big Twelve, maybe Oklahoma. You know, I you know they they barely snuck in last season, and that was with Trey Young. Um, and then if you want to go to the Big East, perhaps Creighton. Um, you know, was in it last season, might not be in it this season, but uh, the obvious ones are are Texas A&M and Arkansas, I think. Yeah, Creighton was picked ninth in the Big East. Um, 
uh, the one that I put on my list, uh, I might be wrong about Arizona State. We'll see. They really squirmed their way into the tournament. The Pac-12 is not going to be good. So maybe because it won't be good, they'll get enough wins there. But um, I, I don't have uh, the Sun Devils getting back either. But it will be interesting to see uh, who, who does and doesn't. And uh, invariably, we will get to January. Forget that we've even had this conversation. And listeners will remind us about this very thing. And uh, there will be teams that are framed certain ways uh, with interesting storylines that we couldn't have possibly predicted at the start of the season. Um, one quick thing that I got asked to mention on this. The podcast is not really changing, except we are changing the URL feed for the podcast. If you are subscribed in iTunes, you shouldn't really be noticing any changes. But if for some reason you get to say, we're planning on podcasting again uh, for Friday, right? So if you get to the end of Friday or Saturday, um, check our Twitter feeds first to make sure we haven't said that we're going to record over the weekend. But if you're not getting the episode, let us know. And then we'll let the people that that deal with that uh, handle it, but it really shouldn't happen. But I was asked to bring it up just in case for our listenership. They're making some tweaks to how the podcast is actually published and put through whatever machines it's put through, and that change is actually happening later on tonight. So it will, it might even take place um, ahead of this t- podcast even publishing. So that is the plan. Uh, we're gonna uh, record again Friday, uh, probably early, and then after that, uh, we're gonna start three times a week next week. Uh, beginning on Sunday night. I think what we'll do on Sunday night is focus strictly on the Champions Classic because it is a big-time event, four top ten teams, four Hall of Fame coaches, uh, three possible top five picks. Um, It's going to be awesome. And we're both going to be there, and we're both traveling on Monday. And if we're both traveling on Monday, then we won't be able to record till late Monday. Then you don't have it till probably Tuesday morning. We're just going to go ahead and do that on Sunday night. So we will use... Uh, Friday's podcast to do whatever. We'll figure that out on Friday. Sunday's podcast will be previewing the Champions Classic. And then we'll, of course, uh, uh, look back at the Champions Classic middle of next week. And then we'll get uh, ready late next week for the first weekend of college basketball. So the season's almost here. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry M.F. and Teagle. Shouts to Larnell. And remember, please go subscribe. Eye on College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. It only takes a couple seconds. If you haven't done that yet, we'd appreciate you doing that for us. Rate it favorably. Five stars, nice comments. That's all we ask, and we will talk to you again on Friday morning. Happy Halloween. Until Friday, take care.